All right. Welcome to the Chris Ann Hall Show. I'm uh, delighted to be with you again today. Uh, the last day I get to spend with you, and it's been a great run. My goal today is to really explain to you what has happened to the American press. It's a big deal. Some call it the fourth estate. Thomas Jefferson was very big on the importance of a free and vibrant press. And uh, you're not going to believe what I'm going to share with you today. But I need to thank Chris Ann Hall and J.C. Hall. And I know that you appreciate them. They'll be back on the next show. And they don't hand over the keys to this Liberty ship uh, very easily. So I'm glad that you trust me, uh, uh, Chris Ann and, and J.C. We've been friends for a long time. And I respect what they do so much. And I'm a pupil of theirs. And uh, glad to share a little bit with you today. All right. So I want to talk about this. It's a big, big deal. Really, the way I see it is what has happened to the American press. We still, a lot of us still think of it as, well, they, they're just a bunch of liberals. And I don't think that explains it enough. But let's go back a ways. Let's go back to the 1940s. When you had journalists who took great pride in their craft, and this really upsets me because the um, the the press, the free press, journalism—it's my craft, you know—and I hate to see my craft really abdicate its its duty and its purpose. What is the purpose of the American press? Well, I think it's to be a watchdog of power and primarily of government. To report what's going on, to give you not just accuracy, that's important, but not just accuracy, but context, right? You know who did that great in the 1940s, early 1940s? It was during World War II. One, one of my favorite and greatest American journalists is Ernie Pyle. Can you see this? Ernie Pyle. He was only about five feet three, about the same height, height as uh, James Madison, actually. Carrying around that big old typewriter, running around with the troops in World War II. And Americans would wake up and grab the newspaper and look for Ernie Pyle's stories. And you know, when he wrote these stories, he didn't talk about, well, the United States troops did this and the German army did that. No, he, he would say we and them. I want to, I want to show you something. If I can share the screen, I'm going to share the screen. Um, if not, I'm going to, I'm going to read this, read this story to you. Um, let's see if I can, if I can do this here. This is one of his, uh, one of his stories. This is journalism. Tell me if you were, if it was in 19, I think 42, 43, and you woke up and you grabbed the newspaper, you know, and you want to find out what's going on in the war. And this is what Ernie Pyle, this is what Ernie Pyle wrote. It's titled, This One is Captain Waskow. And it's at the front lines in Italy, January 10th. In this war, he writes, I have known a lot of officers who were loved and respected by the soldiers under them, but never have I crossed the trail of any man as beloved as Captain Henry T. Waskow of Belton, Texas. Captain Waskow was a company commander in the 36th Division. He'd been in this company since long before he left the States. He was very young, only in his middle 20s. 
but he carried in him a sincerity and gentleness that made people want to be guided by him. After my own father, he comes next, a sergeant told me. He always looked after us, a soldier said. He'd go to bat for us every time. I've never known him to do anything unkind, another one said. I was at the foot of the mule train the night they brought Captain Waskow down. The moon was nearly full, and you could see far up the trail and even partway across the valley. Soldiers made shadows as they walked. Dead men had been coming down the mountain all evening, lashed onto the backs of mules. They came lying belly down across the wooden pack saddle, their heads hanging down on the left side of the mule, their stiffened legs sticking awkwardly from the other side, bobbing up and down as the mule walked. The Italian mule skinners were afraid to walk beside dead men, so Americans had to lead the mules down that night. Even the Americans were reluctant to unlash and lift off the bodies when they got to the bottom, so an officer had to do it himself and ask others to help. The first one came early in the morning. They slid him down from the mule and stood him on his feet for a moment. In the half light, he might have been merely a sick man standing there leaning on another. Then they laid him on the ground in the shadow of the stone wall across the road. I don't know who that first one was. You feel small in the presence of dead men, and you don't ask silly questions. We left him there beside the road, that first one, and we all went back into the cow shed and sat on water cans or lay on the straw waiting for the next batch of mules. Somebody said the dead soldier had been dead for four days and nobody said anything more about him. We talked for an hour or more. The dead man lay alone outside in the shadow on the wall of the wall. <laughs> then a soldier came into the cow shed and said there were some more bodies outside. We went out into the road. Four mules stood there in the moonlight in the road where the trail came down off the mountain. The soldiers who led them stood there waiting this one is Captain Waskow, one of them said quickly. Two men unlashed his body from the mule and lifted it off and laid it in the shadow beside the stone wall. Other men took the other bodies off. Finally, there were five lying uh, end to end in a long row. You don't cover up dead men in the combat zones. They just lie there in the shadows until somebody else comes after them. The uncertain mules moved off to their olive groves. The men in the road seemed reluctant to leave. They stood around and I gradually could sense them moving one by one close to Captain Waskow's body. Not so much to look, I think, as to say something in finality to him and to themselves. I stood close by and I could hear. One soldier came and looked down and said out loud, God damn it. That's all he said. And then he walked away. Another one came and he said, God damn it to hell anyway. He looked down for a few last moments and then he turned off and left. Another man came. I think he was an officer. It was hard to tell officers from men in the dim light for everybody was grimy and dirty. The man looked down into the dead captain's face and then he spoke directly to him as though he were alive. I'm sorry, old man. Then a soldier came and stood beside the officer and bent over, and he too spoke to his dead captain, not in a whisper, but awfully tenderly. And he said, sure, I'm sorry, sir. 
Then the first man squatted down, and he reached down, and he took the captain's hand. And he sat there for a full five minutes, holding the dead hand in his own, intently looking into the dead face. And he never uttered a sound all the time he sat there. Finally, he put the hand down. He reached up and gently straightened the points of the captain's shirt collar, and he sort of rearranged the tattered edges of his uniform around the wound. And then he got up and walked away down the road in the moonlight all alone. The rest of us went back into the cow shed, leaving the five dead men lying in a line end to end in the shadow of the low stone wall. We laid down on the straw in the cow shed, and pretty soon we were all asleep. Now, I don't, I guess I didn't share that, so you just saw me read it. <laughs> Let me make sure that, that you actually did see me read it. I'm looking at your comments, and I, I sure hope that that all worked out, even if you had to see me reading it. I thought I had shared it with you. This is the third time I've ever run this uh, software. But thanks to uh, Chris Ann and JC, I uh, had a deadline. I had to learn it quick. Uh, starting next week, I plan to do some of my own shows right here in the Liberty Lounge. I got to figure out how to beam out of the I've been in my studio, but in their show. And uh, JC had to beam me in. I got to figure out how to get out at the end of the show. And I've got to be out before the end of the hour. Now, I'm looking at comments. Will you let me know if uh, if you were able to hear all that, if everything's going smooth? Because I want to share with you what has happened to the American press. For one thing, uh, most members, would you agree, of the American press no longer feel uh, this kind of loyalty uh, to these United States, to their country? And uh, it's important to tell stories as a, as a journalist uh, in a way that is accurate in a way that uh, gives context and and not really insert yourself in the story. Thank you, Charlotte, so much. I see that that it sounds good. And again, this is this is Ernie Pyle. Uh, this is the the journalist who would travel around with the troops in World War II. He wrote this and about 16 months later he himself would be shot dead. Uh, I think he, they were island hopping in the Pacific against the Japanese, and he was shot with a machine gun in the head shortly before the war ended. Ernie Pyle. There's there's a uh, there's a journalist for you. And I think back on journalism, I think about Edward R. Murrow, the radio broadcaster. The radio broadcaster. And do you remember he would stand on the on the bombed buildings? in London after they were bombed by the Nazis. And he would start off his radio broadcast. What would this have been? Early 1940s, maybe 1940, 41. The bombings of London, he would start off. Remember that? This is all you'd hear. This is London. That was Edward Armour. That's my best Edward Armour impression. And he would describe what had happened and how the uh, often to the into the fog, you would see an, uh, a vehicle drive by and you would see all of, the, all of the buildings that had been bombed. He would describe everything from the rooftop. These were journalists that you could trust. What they were telling you, you, you believed and you had every right to believe it. Today, I don't believe it. And there's a reason for it. 
There's a reason why journalists today aren't practicing their craft, and I'm going to try and explain it to you. Then in the early 1970s, who remembers Woodward and Bernstein of the Washington Post? Woodward and Bernstein, who were getting a tip, an anonymous tip, uh, about what had happened, about uh, Watergate. And, uh, you know, nowadays what would happen? Nowadays, reporters would only report it if it's the Republican Party doing something wrong, right? And it was. But only, that's the only time they're going to report anything. Um, Also, do you think when somebody gave them a tip that the uh, reporters and journalists back then, do you think they said, well, there's no evidence of it? We don't see any evidence of it. Or did they look? There's nothing quite like finding something than looking for it, right? You can say, well, there's no evidence of, of voter fraud. You know, we don't see any evidence. Do you hear any? No, we don't hear any evidence. You go find it. That's the job of a journalist. You go find it. I'll give you an example. You say, but Bernie, they only they only do that to Republicans. In 1988, who remembers this? There was a presumed Democratic presidential candidate by the name of Gary Hart. He was going to be the Democrat candidate against Ronald Reagan, Gary Hart. Pretty cocky, dude. And the Miami Herald had a story. And it talked about his the rumors. It confirmed the rumors of his womanizing. People cared about such things in those days, even for Democrats. Now they only care about it if it's Republicans. Am I right? So what do you think Gary Hart did? Gary Hart said, he, he pulled the old uh, J.R. Ewing approach, right, from Dallas. Who remembers Dallas? J.R. Ewing could lie to you. What would he say? Uh, who are you going to believe, uh, me or your lying eyes? That was pretty much what Gary Hart's response was. He said, I'm not seeing any Donna Rice. Follow me around. He challenged them. Follow me around. See what you see. You'll be bored. Not doing that. So do you think that in 1988, the American press said, he said he didn't do it. The Democrat president nominee, presidential nominee, he said he didn't do it. And that's that. See, that's what they would do today. But no. Back then, journalists had some pride in their in their craft. And they did follow them around. And pictures surfaced with what do you know, Donna Rice on his lap. He had lied. He had lied about it, and he'd gotten caught because the journalists were curious. They gave a flip about the truth. They were free to do it, too, by the way. You know, in the 1980s, they would be pretty rough uh, on members of Congress and the president, but they would be pretty rough equally. Even though, even though most of the journalists were strong Democrats, they had so much pride in their craft that they tried to tell stories down the middle, giving context, and they didn't cut a whole lot of slack to the people on their own side. That was 1988. Now, you move all the way into the early 2000s. What's changed? Here's what I think. Let's take newspapers, for example. 
newspapers were always any business is accountable to who to to where they get their revenue and newspapers got their revenue from the readers through subscriptions right so the reporters and the editors and the publishers they wanted to please the readers they wanted to do their craft to tell these stories about what's going on in America and the stories they you remember this now they were accountable to the subscribers to the to the readers but something changed throughout the 2000s and it's because of the way we consume news right we got a multiplicity of platforms we we were able to go online and get it now we didn't have to wait for the morning and then we also throughout the 90s with the uh in 1987 when the FCC got rid of the so-called fairness doctrine that was really unfair, it really created more places for us to go get information. It was no longer controlled by the three networks, the New York Times, the Washington Post, right? It became, it, it, it became uh, decentralized. And so throughout the 2000s, something happened. Newspapers lost subscribers. And they became more, um, more of their revenue were coming from advertisers. So remember, they are accountable to where they get most of their revenue. So they became more accountable to the advertisers than to the subscribers. So they were less likely to try to please the subscribers by giving them real news. And they were more uh, trying to keep their advertisers happy. And if the advertisers didn't like the stories, then they would call up the newspaper and say, we'll pull the ads. See what happened? They became more vulnerable. And some of the advertisers, even now, especially now in local news, this is one of the things that's happening now in local news. Tell me, in your city, do you think that your local news covers your city council or your county commission or even your state legislature, usually they're a little more in the state legislature, but you look at your local politics. Why don't they? I'll tell you why. Because these days, the city the city councils will vote. They have all these um, other taxing authorities like CRAs, Community Redevelopment Agency, all these other little taxing authorities, and they'll want to maybe market the area. I live in Panama City Beach, Florida, which is a tourist destination. So they want to they want to bring in more tourists. So government will pay with tax money news outlets to run ads. Come visit Panama City, Florida. So think about what happens there. The new the local news outlets become the uh, public private partner with the government. Right? If they report a critical story on the mayor. The mayor might turn around and say, did you like that $25,000 we gave you to run ads? Well, then, you know, start treating us better. And they do. So the local news outlets have become public-private partners over the years with the local governments. And that is the main reason they've gone from being a watchdog to a lapdog. It's terrible. Now... Now it's even now it's even more incredible. Um, so th there are about five or six corporations now that have bought ninety percent 
of the news outlets. So instead of uh, the news outlets being owned by, say, 50 different companies, now they are very, very consolidated. And these few companies, they they will coordinate with each other. This is um, this is how to understand it. The billionaires who want to rule the world, the Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, by the way, in 2013, the owner of Amazon bought the new are uh, the uh, Washington Post, the legendary newspaper, the famed newspaper, a legacy newspaper was bought by Jeff Bezos. Do you think that the Washington Post is doing news now or PR? The other uh, the other news outlets have been bought by companies like Disney and Verizon. So news is no longer news media. If you only remember one thing, this might be it today. News outlets are, are news media is no longer news media. It's marketing media. They're marketing media. They are marketing. The whole purpose of marketing is to change the way you think, to want something more, to not like something. That's marketing. They are marketing media. And by the way, social media is no longer social media, right? Zuckerberg and uh, the owner of uh, Jack, what's his name? <laughs> the owner of Twitter. These guys have gone from it being social media. Remember when we get on there and we'd interact with each other about more than just, you know, fighting over politics. It is, they have become gatekeeper media. Okay. So you got gatekeeper media. And what do I mean by that? Take Facebook, for example. Facebook, yesterday we found out, or the day before, that Facebook will no longer, yeah, they banned President Trump or former President Trump, but they now no longer will even let his voice on their platform. His voice, anything with his voice is banned from Facebook. That is a gatekeeper. Facebook's users, and they're not customers, by the way, they are users. Facebook's customers are the advertisers, right? You are a user, right? And so you are the product being sold to the uh, customers. I used to wonder how in the heck Facebook, I've never seen a business treat its customers so bad as Facebook does and, and survive until about a couple of years ago, I realized I wasn't looking at it properly. They treat their customers fine. Their customers are the advertisers. You are the product being sold. So they're the gatekeepers. Uh, if you're on that platform, you don't get to hear what they don't want you to hear. Some things are not to be heard or seen. They're the gatekeepers. So if this is all you remember, I'll be happy with it. If you think it through and maybe develop it more, news media is now marketing media. Social media is now gatekeeper media. That's what's happened. Reporters are no longer free to practice their craft. Now, I'm going to tell you another part of this that is disgusting. And it is to see people in my craft. I have a master's degree in journalism. I, I, I'm a political commentator, right? I'm not a straight news reporter. I'm not a straight news anchor. I'm a commentator. 
but it still falls under the big umbrella of journalism, right? Under the big umbrella of journalism, think of a newspaper. You have straight news. You have editorials, the unsigned opinion of the publisher. You have op-ed pieces, the columns with, with, with bylines on them written by. And you have uh, political cartoons. All of this is journalism. You have feature stories. This is all journalism. Sometimes people say you're not a journalist. What they mean is you're not a straight news reporter, Bernie. And they're right. I'm not. I'm still a journalist. I take great pride in chasing down stories and making sure they're true. But I have the leeway of being able to comment and give opinions as well. You know, I, I um, there's so much I want to say about it, but I want to share with you something, too. I want to share with you a video and I might break in a little bit, but this video is about nine minutes long. It, it will, it will change the way that you, you will now understand so much better. Gosh, I got to make sure I get this video right. Um, it will change the way that you understand the news. Let's see if I get this right. All right, let's try this here. Oh boy. Now, somewhere I'm supposed to click share um, sound, and I don't see that. So I'm going to be watching your comments. Let me know if this, if you can hear this. I sure hope you can hear this, but I didn't see anywhere where it says share sound. Maybe I have to share the entire screen. Nope. All right, we're going to give this a shot. Chrome has lost your permission to share the screen. Oh boy. I'm gonna try it one more time here. I hope I don't, I hope I'm able to do this because I really want to share this with you. All right, we're gonna do that. And that Chrome has lost permission to capture your screen. Hmm. Okay. I don't know if I'm gonna go through all this with you. Maybe I will allow the apps below to record the contents of your screen. No, I'm not going to go through all that. I hope you'll forgive me, but I'll tell you the name of the video and I hope that you'll look it up. It is, it is from uh, a channel on YouTube with a million subscribers called second thought. Okay. Second thought, two words. And the title of the video is capitalism and monopolies how five companies control all U.S. media. It is a very, very important thing to, to understand. All right, so I'll give up on that. Did you get that? All right, I told you also um, that I was gonna share with you today some of the most important books that I've um, read that have, in you know, really influenced my philosophy. About 25 years ago is when I started to really, uh, oh, thank you so much, Dobson. That's great. About 25 years ago, I really started to want to understand this stuff. And I'm going to show you some of the books, and it's important to me. It, this is something I've noticed and that's been bothering me a lot, actually. Do you know when I used to do my radio show 10 years ago, I, I knew that when I was doing the radio show that about 
25% of the audience, it was a lot different. Talk radio was a lot different. About 25% of the audience really, they were on my side. You know, go Bernie, go. We agree with you. I mean, they were always on my side. And then you got about 25% who couldn't stand me. It seemed like they couldn't, they, they, they loved to hate me or something because they were always there, but they never agreed with me, right? And then I had about 50% of the audience that didn't have an opinion about that. They really weren't that political and they were trying to understand. This is, this is a big deal. Back then, if somebody were to call the show and, and debate me, or if I were listening to a talk show and somebody were to debate, they were mostly debating policy. I remember, especially after uh, George Bush uh, went to war with Iraq, I remember these debates, right? And you would have some people say, well, the Iraqi people need this. The Iraqi people need us. And, and then maybe somebody would say, which Iraqi people? The Kurds? The Shia? I mean, which Iraqi people? There were three different Iraqi people and they didn't get along, right? We often project our American values onto our foreign policy. And so back then when we were debating these issues, we were debating the policies, not the personalities. It wasn't as much uh, George Bush's personality. It It was the whole, we were debating policy more back then. And so, it took a lot of courage to call up and debate because if you didn't know that you might get embarrassed and then you'd have to sort of slink away and go, God, I didn't know that. So embarrassed. I hope nobody heard that. Right. But now it's not that way. Now, when I do this, I usually feel like it's no longer 25% of people say, go Bernie, go. We love you. 25% say, I can't stand that knucklehead. And then there's 50% that are trying to figure it out. I don't, it's not that way anymore. Now it is almost everybody is very sure about how they feel, not what they know, but how they feel. And there's very few people who are looking to learn because the way we communicate now, let's say there's the, let's say it was that debate and let's say somebody writes a comment, you know, they're debating on a, on a Facebook thread. Oh, what about the Iraqi people? What if somebody says, which Iraqi people, right? And then nowadays they would just post a meme, roll their eyes, get snarky and move along. There's no embarrassment anymore because we don't debate policy, we debate personality. And so everybody's an expert. You know what they say about opinions. It's really, really disheartening. So scholarship matters to me, right? Not just meme wisdom. Meme wisdom, I don't respect that, you know. I mean, I'm amused by it. I laugh at them, you know, in, in an entertaining way. But scholarship matters, right? We, we, we should really strive to understand the issues. One of my favorite quotes is from John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill, I love this quote. He said, if you only know your side of the case, then you really don't even know that. Think about that. You should strive to know both sides of the issue. <clears throat> One of the smartest guys I know, and J.C. Hall's had him on the show before. His name is, um, his name is uh, Tho Bishop. 
he was explaining why uh, minimum wage is a bad idea. Basically, the reason I think it's a bad idea is because minimum wage uh, criminalizes work below an arbitrary number uh, that is chosen. Criminalizes work. If you work for $14.99, you're a criminal. It, it, that's why it's wrong to me, right? I believe in. I believe you should be able to sell your labor at the price somebody wants to buy it. All right, I don't want to get into a minimum wage, but somebody was arguing with him on Facebook, and I asked her. I just typed. I said, "Do, do you understand Tho, what Tho Bishop is saying? Could you make his argument?" And this person said, "No, I don't think I could make the argument, but I think we've reached a point in time where we can demand." dignity, and a living wage. What if you're wrong? No, we've, we can make demands right now. You know, it's, we've reached a point in time where demands trump scholarship and understanding. But what if you're wrong? What if you hurt the very people that you want to help because you're wrong? And, 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 you're, and you're operating under a, a paradigm of rage over reason. It's important to understand these things. <clears throat> so these are some of the books that I've read over the years and as I've tried to understand both sides of the issues. I've always wanted to do something. I've always wanted to do a show, maybe a once a week show, where say we debate any issue. Like let's say what is a natural born citizen? So you gotta be a natural born citizen to be the president of the United States according to the Supreme Law of the Land. It's one of the requirements. But what is that? One time I had a guy, it was 2015, and a guy was disagreeing with me on Twitter. I said, why don't you come on the show and we'll talk about it. So he comes on the show the next day. And uh, I said, I got an idea. I came up with it like right before the show. I said, I got an idea. How about I give your side of the argument and you give my side of the argument? And so I began and I laid it out. And he goes, you're exactly right. What are we arguing about? I said, no, no, I wanted you to understand that I know what you, what you are saying. Now you lay out my argument. He goes, I'm not doing that. I don't believe that. I said, but can you do it? He couldn't and he wouldn't. <clears throat> so he didn't understand both sides of the argument, which means he didn't even understand his. Scholarship is important. Scholarship matters. Do you mind if I share a few books with you? These are big deals to me. And I, I told you already I was going to start with Chris Ann's uh, book, Sovereign Duty. And in this one, and it because it says the 10th Amendment talks a lot in here about the importance of sheriffs. It talks in here about the importance of uh of states, of statehood, the Article uh, 5 convention, but acting like sovereign states, remembering that states created the federal government and they didn't create the federal government through the constitution in order to be lorded over by their creation. <clears throat> sovereign duty, start with it. This one, too, I've told you about The Law by Frederick Bastiat. This is, I've always said over the years, this is my first book I recommend on anybody's Liberty Library. And uh, Frederick, ba you know, I think I have something I'll show you. I'm going to do this. 
because I want you to see um, what I've, oh, look at this. I, I wrote an article uh, uh, back in the day uh, called, I think it was Nine Liberty Books. Yeah, here we go. Here's what I said about the law. So I don't have to try to just remember off the top of my head. The 19th century French philosopher, Frederick Bassiat, discusses the selfish nature of mankind and the proper role of government. My favorite quote, the state is the great fiction by which everybody tries to live at the expense of everybody else. The law or the government, he argues, should protect private property and punish plunder. His lesson on what is seen and what is not seen is priceless. Then we've got economics in one lesson, and that's this book right here, by the way. And this is the, the best copy of it. Oh, this is good stuff. This book here, written for people like you and me, short chapters. It's not full of graphs and theories. Economics in one lesson by Frederick Bastiat. He was a newspaper man. And so he writes short chapters that are so relevant to today. You read this book and uh, you will be unbamboozable. Let's see. What did I say about it? Uh, yeah, even, even Nobel Prize economist F.A. Hayek was impressed, saying, I know of no other modern book from which the intelligent layman can learn so much about the basic truths of economics. Hazlitt's explanation of the broken window, economic fallacy will empower you. Politicians can't pander to readers of this book because the fallacies become obvious. You won't be bamboozled, as I like to say. All right, I want to show you a few more, too. Um, you know that one. You know how many, it's amazing how many people haven't read it. The haunting dystopian uh, novel traps us inside a world where our thoughts are controlled by a totalitarian government. Double speak prevails, just like now. For example, the Ministry of Truth spreads propaganda. The Ministry of Peace is always at war. The Ministry of Plenty is never has enough, do they? Orwell shows how the human yearning for truth, freedom, and love can be altered through government control of language. Oh, this is this is a big one here. Uh, this one's a little more. Uh, th this one's a little more dense, I would say, uh, more academic, uh, F.A. Hayek, The Road to Serfdom. I, I read these a long time ago, and oh, oh, look at that, with the, <laughs> with the yellow, with the highlights and the notes, I, I write all in them. Um, but F.A. Hayek's book is, is a big deal. I would certainly, uh, I would certainly get to it probably later in your studies. Um, Hayek championed free markets in the mid-20th century, while the Rest touted collectivism. See, in the mid in 1950, America was its intellectuals were always talking about collectivism, some sort of collectivism, socialism. And he was alone in academia saying, no, no, no. He describes the spontaneous order that arises from economic and social freedom when people are free to pursue their own interests. And he contrasts that with the shortages and misery called by the, caused by the fatal conceit of central planners, as in the Soviet Union. What does he, what does he mean by the fatal conceit? Can I tell you, the, the pro, one of the problems with socialism or 
socialism on steroids, communism, is the lack of knowledge. And that's the fatal conceit. You get this group of central planners that think that they know what everybody needs, what everybody wants, but that's impossible. You can't predict these things. Do you think that in the 80s, would you have guessed that, uh, say, swatch watches would have been a thing or Snapple? If you could have, you would have made a killing in the stock markets. Here's an example of what I mean by planners make mistakes. They can't possibly know what people want. In the Soviet Union, they had so much milk, right? But milk has alternative uses. You can make yogurt, you can make cheese, you can make ice cream, you can make other things with milk. So they would say, well, we'll make this much cheese and this much milk. And put, But what would happen is you would have warehouses that would be empty because people wanted more of that. And then you'd have warehouses where you'd get some spoilage because people didn't want that as much as they wanted this. Here's another example in the Soviet Union. There wasn't enough glass <clears throat> to put windows on all the homes. So the, the planners decided, we got an idea. We'll just make the glass thinner and then we'll have enough glass to put in all the houses. Well, what happened was the glass was too fragile. And then you had fewer windows because they broke. The problem, one big problem with socialism is the knowledge deficit called the fatal conceit, as F.A. Hayek called it. All right, let's see what else do I have for you here. A few more of these. Free to Choose by Milton Friedman. I think I have <clears throat> oh, I have that one behind me. Uh, you know, he was just so good. 